Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Be careful, whatever you're going to do, Vikingo. Oh, my God! Hello, hello, everyone. It's Jack back once again with Cultaholic. Uh, and it's time for my Matches of the Month March edition as we march on down the road to WrestleMania. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jack, why, why are you doing this now? It's not even the end of March yet. You might not have seen all the matches. Don't worry. I've got a plan. Like James Blunt in the song, You're Beautiful. Isn't that a sinister lyric? I've got a plan. Don't like that in the slightest, James. Um, My plan's less sinister. It's just that I'm going to do a special bonus episode of Matches of the Month um, for WrestleMania week. Because there's so many shows on in WrestleMania week. There's like, obviously, WrestleMania. There's an NXT show. There's Impact. There's Ring of Honor. And then there's all the indie goodness as well. There's going to be a podcast's worth of matches just in that week, I'm almost certain. So let's crack on, because these are my matches of the month. Say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. Oh, him in with the chain! We're going to start by talking about probably the biggest show of the month, of course, AW Revolution, right back in the first week of March. And it probably had the most talked about two matches of the month as well. Certainly one of them anyway. So we're going to jump in and talk straight, uh, straight about them. The first one being the 60-minute Ironman main event for the AW World Championship, MJF, defending the belt against Brian Danielson. This is the second month in a row that I'm opening with a match with a lot of discussion around it. And first and foremost, before I get into the positives and maybe some negatives that I felt about the match as well, I would just like to say I thought it was very, very good. A very good performance from both men. And I'm not, admittedly, usually a fan of the Iron Man stipulation. I don't normally enjoy this type of match. I love the concept of the Iron Man stipulation, the idea of racing against a time limit to, you know, to get the most falls, but I don't feel like historically it's often paid off in practice. I don't mind a half hour Ironman match, but a full 60 minute Ironman is so tricky to do. So I do think that both guys here deserve all the credit in the world, as well as anybody else 
who may have had a hand in putting it together. Um, obviously, Brian already has all the credit in the world. He's one of the greatest of all time. But MJF deserves a lot of credit as well, aside from the whole tequila incident in the crowd. Uh, the positives of this match, I love the pacing, which is probably the biggest challenge to nail in an Ironman match. I thought it was really thought out really well. I thought there was a steady level of action throughout and yet could still rise to a crescendo at the end without the crowd being burned out already. Um, even like the least action-packed bit of the match, which was the opening, made sense with the story because it was a lot of stalling. But as I say, it made sense because it was MJF stalling, not wanting to get straight in there with a more skilled opponent and one the story they've very clearly told throughout, one uh, who was more used to these long, grueling matches than MJF. I also enjoy the ending. That's another big positive for me. Um, a big false finish off the knee, then MJF holding on in the submission and time running out, and then word coming from the back that, <laughs> that the biggest babyface in the world, Tony Khan, heroically does not want this match to end as a tie. Uh, and then obviously MJF cheats to win. Uh, I had mixed feelings on that at first because... Even though we all kind of suspected that would happen, I think they still managed to make it a bit shocking and unexpected because of the manner in which his victory followed with Brian actually tapping out. Uh, I was again torn on that finish, thinking Brian wouldn't tap out. Then he explained it perfectly on Dynamite, saying I did it, you know, because I've sacrificed too much of my health and I need to spend more time with my family. And MJF was right. I thought it was a heart-wrenching explanation and one which made the finish all the more effective. A lot of people I've seen have this down as their match of the year so far. And I can totally see why. I just don't know if it'll be there come the end of the year because I saw not many, at least enough people, who didn't enjoy it as much. Um, so usually there's like just, I think, more of a consensus, more of an outpouring, less debate around a match that goes on to become match of the year. Whereas in this case, even though the reaction was largely positive, I think there was enough of a debate around it that by the end of the year it will not be the consensus match of the year candidate. I could be wrong, though, because people who liked it seem to really like it. I liked it a bit. Like, <laughs> not a bit. It was one of my favorite matches of March. But come the end of the year, I don't know if it'll be up there for me. Which brings us on to what I thought were the negative aspects of the match. And there's only one big one for me, really. But when it happened, it took me right out of the match. It ruined, as they say, my immersion. It's a really harmful one as well. It, it prevented... It prevented it from being in my top two or three matches of the year so far, although it is, as I said, still kind of up there. And it's it's the it's the moment where MJF low-blowed Brian and then got two falls out of it, which I get in theory what they're trying to do there. Like, he's gone, ha-ha, I've turned the tables on you with my sneakiness, and he's got himself two falls. But watch it back. It doesn't work for me because what you've had there is essentially MJF low-blown Brian, getting a pinfall. Fair enough, that's... You know, that's what MJF does. Uh, he's taken him by surprise. He's taken the fall on the on the DQ for the low blow. He's evened it back up with the immediate pinfall. Then he's pinned him again. And I know that low blows are powerful in wrestling. Not that powerful. Not enough to keep someone with the story and the history of Brian Danielson. <laughs> I really emphasize the B that Brian Danielson. Not enough to keep him down for two consecutive three counts. I don't agree with that anyway. And it really took me out of the match for a good few minutes and was then a sticking point for me when everyone else afterwards was talking about how brilliant it was. And it was a brilliant match, but I just couldn't get that nagging negative out of my brain, I guess. And it, in, it, in a way, that moment was also a little bit of a microcosm of 
AEW sometimes. It's capable of being really ambitious and really inventive, which this match also was, uh, fitting in with the, the aims of the promotion, I guess. But then AEW are sometimes guilty of getting a bit lazy with the finer details week to week, which I think about this spot in this match. So, it, it, yeah, it was a bit of a microcosm of the wider product for me. Um, but on the whole, I still thought it was an excellent main event. So I've kind of gotten over that little negative for me. I even argued with some people in the office, not full on argued, but had a debate with some people in the office saying that they didn't mind that bit. But I just couldn't get it out of my head that MJF pinned Brian twice off a low blow. I don't know. One, I understand. Two, it's too far for me. I take wrestling far too seriously. I'm just hearing myself and getting all self-conscious. Obviously, the Iron Man match was not the only highly discussed match on the show, which leads me to Texas Death Match. Wrapped in those chains, he looks like a modern incarnation of Bruiser Brody. But Hangman Page may be looking at Channel Stand, the Lariat Hansen, as Hangman Buck Shot Lariat. With the chain, with the chain on the neck. Oh! And oh, no, no. Oh, oh, this is dangerous. With the chain wrapped around the neck of John Moxley. John Moxley versus Hangman Adam Page. Obviously, compared to a lot of indie deathmatch stuff, or Japanese-style deathmatch stuff, maybe, as well, this wouldn't be the most violent match on a lot of cards for a lot of promotions. But what I want to say is, in terms of a mainstream promotion of AW size, this is one of the most violent matches I can remember seeing on such a platform. Or visually violent, anyway. There are matches where you can tell that more... Real terrifying damage has been done, like Rock versus Mankind in the I Quit match and all of those chair shots. There are matches where greater risks were taken in a single moment or a big high spot, like Mankind again versus Undertaker in Hell in a Cell. There were matches with more blood, like Eddie versus JBL, however unintentional that may have been. But in terms of a mainstream promotions pay-per-view match being very visceral and bloody and kind of disgusting visually... This was the most extreme example I at least can think of. Again, I want to really emphasize in a promotion like AW or WWE. I know that I've been to a deathmatch tournament where there was worse than this, and it was quite something, but I fully understand why it's not the sort of wrestling we see in a promotion of AW's scale. That was in a vegan cafe in Leeds. I went with my friends Adam Pacitti and Botchamania Matthew, and I was worried that I'd inhaled glass dust because it was real. <laughs> a tournament was ridiculous. Um, and there was no respite. I think there might have been one normal match in amongst the madness. And it got swallowed up by the rest of the card, obviously. But Moxley versus Hangman. Was it any good? Because I saw a lot of people... This kind of dovetailed with the discourse around MJF versus Brian Danielson. A lot of people were saying, oh, that was a long, boring match. I preferred the quick bloodiness of this one. Some people were saying, no, the other match was more of a wrestling match. This was silly and senseless. And I don't agree with people who said it was too violent because it fit the storyline. And I, I think, slash hope, that some of it was worked more cleverly so that it wasn't as horrific as it might have seemed. The bit I can't get out of my head is, Moxley stabbing Hangman with the fork in the forehead and drawing blood that way. And I hope that they worked that somehow because it was grim. <coughs> um, did I enjoy the match as a match? It was hard for me to analyze because there wasn't that much logical reason to it, was there? There was a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff kicked out of. Sometimes 
I couldn't escape that feeling that they were just trundling from spot to spot. Here's one horrific thing, and now we're going to set ourselves up, and here's the next horrific thing. And I know that's what a lot of wrestling matches are, moving from spot to spot, but the beauty comes in the disguise of the... Like you can't see the join, you can't see the seam. It's seamless, as they say. Um, and as effective as these horrific set-piece moments were, I don't know if I can honestly look back on this match and say that it formed a coherent whole. One thing I will say in its favor is that the ending was brilliant, man. I did not expect John Moxley to submit. And if I'd known ahead of time that Moxley was going to submit, I would have gone, that's rubbish. Moxley doesn't submit. How are they going to do this? But the way they did it was actually perfect, like a perfect way for him to lose. Because he did tap out, but it didn't make him look weak at all. It was a panic situation. He was being strangled by the hangman. So the chain around the neck over the top rope, it made hangman look very clever and resourceful, but also merciless at the same time, which is great. Um, it was a wonderful ending to a match that I have conflicting feelings about, but if I have to be honest, I, I, I did enjoy it quite a lot as well. It was certainly a spectacle. I just don't know if it was the match for me. Not because I don't enjoy such violent matches. They've definitely got a place in wrestling. I just think in terms of psychology, it was a little bit, a little bit too much of a mess for me. Uh, now on to the third and final match I'm going to talk about from Revolution, which was um, probably my second favorite match of the night in between those two that I've just talked about. But behind the, the Iron Man match, which I have to, even despite that moment I didn't like, I have to concede was probably match of the night, just ahead of the Moxley Hangman one. The trios championship between the elite Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks and the House of Black, Malachi Black, Brody King, and Buddy Matthews. This one was a whole load of fun, wasn't it? I think, like, despite its flaws, the Ironman match was my favorite match of the night. This one, as far as I can tell, didn't really have many f any flaws I can think of. It was just a fun banger of a match. It was much easier for me to just sit and enjoy. After it had finished, I didn't have to sit there like I did with the MJF one and go back and forth over the various positives and negatives in my head and how they impacted each other and impacted the match itself. No, I just it's just a match you can just sit down and just have a blast watching. It was great. It also demonstrated to me the importance of a match's result, something we can all remember keenly. Because the fact, because some people say it's the journey, not the destination. But in terms of the quality of wrestling matches, I look at it as the journey is as important as the destination. A bad finish or a finish that doesn't necessarily resonate with you, I believe, can seriously impact, impact excuse me, the, the quality of a match. Likewise, on the flip side, if you find a match decent, and the finish is brilliant, or it's a result you really enjoy, then I think it can elevate the whole quality of the match in any given person's eyes. The fact that how, what I'm saying is the fact the House of Black won here really improved the matches standing in my eyes, and it was a good match anyway. If the Elite had won, I think there'd have been a huge question of where does their title run go next? And instead, they've very wisely taken the belts off the Elite to make room for this new Hangman storyline um, where it's like, what's going on with him and Kenny Omega and possibly the Bucks as well? What's going on between Hangman and the Blackpool Combat Club, who are now once again, well, not once again, who are now vicious heels? Um, and while all that's going on on one side of, th of things, we can now see what the House of Black can do as champions, and there's a whole bunch of fresh matchups. So I thought the booking decision was correct, and I thought the Young Bucks continue to prove people wrong. And what I mean by that is there is this lingering narrative surrounding the Young Bucks that's been going on now for 
I think this is a stereotype that's at least at least a half decade out of date, if not longer, which is that they're spot monkeys and that they don't tell stories and that they just do moves and flips. And people who say that clearly haven't really watched many modern Young Bucks matches, even in their time in New Japan, where it was maybe most apparent, where they dialed it back most. The Young Bucks do tell stories in their matches. Sometimes, yes, they are overdramatic stories or melodramatic stories even, but they do tell stories and their matches always have a narrative running through them. Um, whether they're the faces or the heels as well. Um, I thought here their story wasn't melodramatic or overdramatic. I thought it was really good. Um, and I think that also the House of Black, to give them major props as well, are so effective in the trio's format. Each of them, like they look like an evolutionary chain of Pokemon, don't they? You start off with, you start a Pokemon, you got Buddy, then he evolves into Malachi, and then you get Big Brody at the end, don't you? Yeah, feed him rare candies, yum, yum, yum. <laughs> My word. Um, but you know what I mean? They've got a heavyweight, they've got a strikes-based guy, and then they've got the nimble, but to be fair, he's also a bit of an all-rounder, isn't he? But the, the nimble kind of workhorse, Buddy Matthews. And I think that it, it really gives their matches a multitude of different styles and um, sequences, and it just opens up a whole range of possibilities and makes life easier for their opponents probably as well. The main bit that I always take away from House of Black Trio's match is the bit where Brody just decides, right, that's enough. I'm now going to batter everyone and run through strikes and not even bother countering stuff and just letting it bounce off me. Um, yeah, they're really exciting as a trio, and I really enjoy watching them. You also get a sense that they are really hard to beat as well, and that's a great thing to convey in what is, let's remember, a completely predetermined sport. So you get a sense still that, they, oh, these guys are hard to beat, and whoever ends up beating them for those trio title, trio's titles will get a good rub because of it. So those are my general thoughts on the best matches to come out of Revolution. I don't know if it sounded too negative there, because I had criticisms to, to say about the Iron Man match and the Hangman Moxley match especially, but I still think all three of these matches were excellent. And even though I've got maybe the biggest criticism about the Iron Man one, I still think that was my favorite one. Um, so it's a, it's a convoluted start to this podcast, but um, I wonder if you all agree, and I'll be interested to know what people think. I think even though I have been quite positive there, that my reaction to Revolution is perhaps less positive than the general consensus because this show was met with great enthusiasm. And I think that was probably deserved on AEW's part. They kind of knocked it out of the park. Another promotion that really knocked it out of the park, we'll talk about right now. Japan. <laughs> 最新の試合映像から記者会見生配信バラエティ企画までキラキラ輝くスターダムの今が天候盛り今すぐ登録。Wonder Ring Stardom. I've had a admiring yet distant relationship with Stardom as a promotion over the past couple of years. They have been one of the promotions that has bounced back from the pandemic and from lockdown the best. They handled it the best out of a lot of promotions. Definitely better than their sister or brother promotion, New Japan. Um, and their momentum continues to grow year on year. I nominated them in our end of year awards on the website, uh, sorry, on the YouTube channel for uh, promotion of the year. And I was laughed at by my colleagues who doubted that I'd even watched Stardom. So I'm like, right, this year I'm going for it. I'm watching a lot of Stardom. And I watched a lot of Stardom this month. And it was great. They are. They have a deep talent pool to stardom. Lots of amazing wrestlers there. 
And that's despite, by the way, them losing over the years Io Shirai, Kairi Sane, uh, or Kairi Hojo, as she was known in in, um, in stardom. Um, <clears throat> various others as well. Uh, the more I think about it, the more they've retained a lot of their talent too. So maybe that point was reaching a dead end. Anyway, stardom this month in March held uh, their Triangle Derby, or Derby, I suppose, their Triangle Derby series. Um, a, a series of shows built around this trios tournament, but all three of the matches I want to talk about came from the final show of this series of shows. None of them were tournament matches. They were all singles matches. So, and they were all for titles as well. They were all for singles titles. So I'm going to talk about those. Um, from what I understand, the tournament was good as well. The main event of this show was the final of that trios tournament. And I felt bad for it because I had to follow three distinct, unique, and memorable singles matches. So what I'm saying is, through the medium of a trios tournament, Stardom really helped cement themselves as a promotion with excellent singles action. <clears throat> Let's begin with a match for the Wonder of Stardom Championship, which is kind of their IC title. It's kind of their second-tier title um, between the champion Saya Kamitani and the challenger Hazuki. Um... This belt has been held by Saya Kamatani for a long time. She already has uh, the second longest reign ever and the second longest amount of days with the belt in total, despite only starting to wrestle, I believe, in 2019. So clearly the promotion sees her as a bit of a chosen one. But maybe because of the speed with, uh, with which she has been pushed, I've seen opinion online be quite split over her. I've seen people suggesting that she botches a lot, which might be true. I didn't see evidence of that really in this match. Um, I've seen people say that she's not as charismatic as she maybe should be. Again, I don't know about that. But uh, maybe I, I would suggest maybe she's just got a lot of expectations on her because Stardom's roster is really strong overall. So I feel quite bad for Saya Kamatsani, even though she has been a dominant champion for the past 400 days or whatever. Um her challenger, Hazuki, is quite the opposite. Someone, from what I can tell, is a wrestler that the fans love, but feel maybe has been underused by the promotion. So, and, it, and these are all quite young wrestlers as well in Stardom. They've got quite a young roster on the whole. She's only 25, but has already had a very storied time with Stardom. She actually retired a few years ago, really young, but then came back in 2021. And this title shot has been like her first big moment since she came back from retirement, a belt she's never held, I believe, but wants to get her hands on. And uh, yeah, this match really felt like it was her time to shine, except it wasn't because she lost. Um, and if you watch this match, the crowd are so behind the challenger as well, so behind Hazuki. And again, you've got this champion who's inexperienced and maybe has been pushed a bit too quickly versus a challenger who is quality and has not been used that well. Um, and the, the the champion beats her more popular foe, but I still love the match, though. And it's a slight recurring theme on this podcast, it seems. I said it about El Lindemann versus Kaito Ishida back in January in Glate. I said it about another stardom match last month, Julia versus Suzu Suzuki. I came out of this one far more interested in the loser of the match than the winner that they want to push going forwards. But those times back then... Maybe my own ignorance of certain wrestlers came into it because you're way more likely, I guess, to be interested in someone you've never seen wrestle before. You're more likely to be blown away by them. Here, though, 
it wasn't just that I didn't know that much about the wrestlers involved. It was very, very clear the crowd were also far more into Hazuki than they are Saya, which is a tricky situation for the champion. And it doesn't help that Hazuki, this challenger, this underutilized darling of the company, is clearly amazing, by the way. Excellent in the ring, impactful, fast, great on offense, great at selling as well. I noticed not just the selling of her opponent's moves, but selling the emotions of the match. She has amazing facial expressions. She kind of reminds me a little bit in this way of facial expression selling of Mickey James. Mickey James also really good at that sort of, oh, I'm really tired, or I can't believe they kicked out of that move. So yeah, Hazuki's my new favorite wrestler in the world ever. Um, I will say though, even though Hazuki was the one clearly leading this match in terms of leading the way, Kamatani held up her end of the bargain. A very good performance, I'd say, as the resilient champion taking on this, like, whirlwind of an opponent. If this match had finished maybe three minutes, maybe, earlier than it did, I think it would be in my top three matches, at least, of the year so far. That's how good it was. It was that good. It's just that it's it outstayed its welcome by, like, a few sequences and a few near falls. And you actually hear the crowd build to a fever pitch then the match carries on and they get quieter down the final stretch, the final, final stretch, which isn't what you want, is it? And we don't just see it in stardom. We see it all the time in AW, in NXT, in New Japan. Certainly we see it as well. Actually, interestingly, we don't see matches outstay their welcome too often on the WWE main roster, on pay-per-views on the main roster. That seems to be something that WWE know how to avoid most of the time, which is interesting, an interesting potential strength there for WWE. Um, but this starter match, despite me not being as excited about those final couple of sequences, it was still an amazing match. And um, it was in the middle of the card. There were still three matches after it. So follow that, guys. Um, then it was followed by, in my opinion, a better match. Although the general, I will say, it seems like the response online has preferred the one I've just talked about to this next match, which I personally preferred. And I think what's happened here is People more familiar with Hazuki and her story already of retirement and coming back and this being her moment, they probably were able to tap into that match even more on an emotional level than I was. Um, I, I clearly didn't connect with it quite as much as many people will have. In a relative vacuum, though, I slightly preferred this next match for the High Speed Championship. Azumi, as it's often written, AZM, that's the shorthand, that's, what, that's her ring name spelling, but they say Azumi taking on, she's the champion, taking on the challenger and former champion and her nemesis, Starlight Kid. Um, the story here is that they're longtime rivals. I remember it was one of the matches I watched last year that really made me interested in stardom and, and how what a run of form they're on as a promotion. It was Starlight Kid who beat Azumi to become the high-speed champion for the second time in her career around this time last year. And um, I just remember thinking when I watched their first clash that it was crazy how they managed to wrestle quickly but intricately at the same time because we've seen fast matches and we've seen technically intricate matches but when both of those things are represented at once in a match that's when it becomes really impressive and you think they are like clicking like they know each other really really well um, I can't fully remember that match last year but I remember there were certain parts where maybe the match got away from them a little bit not this time this sequel was brilliant and they tightened up certain bits and they wrestled a very intelligent and thrilling match. I loved this match. Um, 
The name of the belt that they're fighting for, the High Speed Championship, might make you think, oh, well, it's just a spot fest then. And I would not say that's true. I think these matches are kind of like those epic, long Japanese main event style matches, except if you put them on like 1.5 speed. And because of the speed, and because they're not too long, it's a really refreshing formula given the modern trend of these very long epic bouts on shows such as this one. It was still a fairly long match, by the way. I'm not saying it was short. It was like between 15 and 20 minutes. But unlike this previous match with uh, Sayakamitani versus Suzuki, this one, I think, um, I think that was a good length for this one. The last match I said went a few minutes too long. I think this one was a pretty perfect length. Starlight Kid is clearly a special talent. She's great. And the chemistry she shares with Azumi is insane. Azumi, it's worth mentioning, who won this match, by the way, she retained the high-speed title. She's going to be Mercedes Monet's next opponent, uh, I think, anyway. Although Mercedes now wants to wrestle Mickey James as well. Whichever one comes first, Mercedes has mentioned both Mickey James and Azumi as well. And if this match goes ahead, I think I'll be very interested to see how Azumi works with an opponent she's less familiar with in a different type of match. But presumably... Um, they'll be working Mercedes type of match. But if, if Azumi comes out and Mercedes works a balls to the wall, 100 miles an hour, Azumi style, high speed title kind of match, that would be brilliant as well. But no, I'm very interested to see how Azumi does against Monet. We'll have to see. Um, but again, I feel like I'm misrepresenting this match and why it was so good because it wasn't all fast choreography and, you know, high flying moves. They also factored in counters, exchanges, demonstrating that they know each other very well. And also a key element of this match, submissions. A wise move, which added a very different element to the match. Not rest holdy submissions. They were constantly struggling for position or countering each other's submissions. There was always an element of peril. Peril. I was going to say danger. I thought, no, I'm going to fancy this up. There was always an element of peril. Um, I'm really gushing about this match because it was one of my favorite matches of the year so far, as you can probably tell. I don't quite have as much to say about it as I did the previous one in terms of the the uh, feelings behind it, because I don't think it was as emotionally ambitious as the previous match. It wasn't as long or as complicated down the stretch, but I think it more fully achieved everything it set out to do. I think it was more of a complete match um, in that regard. A pair of wonderful matches, and remember, there were still two more to go on this show. I'm not going to talk about the main event, which was still a great match, the, the final of the trios tournament, but I am going to talk about the match that people seem to prefer online, but which I'm going to criticize, Whoa! Uh, even though it was the more talked about match of the night. <clears throat> um, the World of Stardom Championship match. Julia, who featured last month, who I had very good things to say about in her victory over Suzu Suzuki, taking on Maya Yukihi for the World of Stardom title, the big, the big belt in stardom, the main belt. <clears throat> and last time when I talked about Julia's match with Suzu Suzuki, um, their history was both in the promotion Ice Ribbon, which they'd both been in before Julia left for stardom, and now Suzu has left for stardom, and they've caught up with each other, and they had that really good match last month. You might be saying, why am I talking about this match that I didn't enjoy on Matches of the Month? It's because it's one of the most discussed match I've se matches I've seen online this month, um, and I don't think that should stop me from talking about it. Hopefully also, if I explain why I didn't like it, it acts as a nice counterweight to the matches that I did like. <laughs> Um, I'm being very sassy here. I'll get to why I didn't like it, but I'll explain the background first. Um, this time, Julia was facing another former Ice Ribbon wrestler, but unlike Julia and Suzu Suzuki, she's not now a stardom wrestler. She's very much a freelancer. In fact, I think I read on Voices of Wrestling, great website, that uh, in storyline, Maya Yukihi hates stardom. Um, and, and her entrance really made that seem 
legit as well. Like she walked out of the ring, serious face on, not playing to the crowd. And I was like, oh, I'm interested in this character, Maya Yukihi. Um, so she's come over here to batter Julia. Julia, helpfully, also hates Yukihi. Uh, Julia comes out, uh, she brings a table to the ring with her and then hits Maya with the belt before the bell. And it's deliberately, the whole match has got to feel less like a wrestling bout and more like a fight between two people who hate each other. And they did a great job conveying that. That's not my issue with this match. I was enjoying it all the way through and I was enjoying all the hatred and the vitriol and the stiffness of it until Julia took Yukihi to that table that she brought to ringside with her on the outside. Pyle drove her through it. Then Julia got up to get back in the ring, and Yukihi was about to lose by countout. No, Yukihi, it seemed like she just, it seems like she gets straight back up from this pile driver through the table and nails Julia with a piece of the broken table. And the match just carries on with the brawling around the ring. And I'm like, what? Sell the pile driver through the table? This was a deliberate choice as well. It wasn't like a botch by Yukihi. The the match, I think, was set out so that she no-sells this pile driver through the table because they go around the ring. And on the other side, she pile drives Julia through the table on the other side. And then again, they just carry on scrapping. I'm like, don't no-sell pile drivers through... Guys. God, between this and my complaint about MJF Brian Danielson, I've learned that <laughs> a really important factor to me when I talk about how good a match is, is are moves sold appropriately? If they're not sold enough or are sold too much, then I am apparently not a fan. Anyway, they both got counted out on the outside not because they were taking damage, just because they hated each other so much and they were brawling. Uh, so they both got counted out. It was a draw. And I wanted to enjoy it. And then it all got ruined for me at the end. Another reason I've mentioned this match on Matches of the Month, even though it wasn't one of my Matches of the Month, is because it features Maya Yukihi, who did wrestle in one of my Matches of the Month. And it provides a nice segue right now to talk about Yukihi versus Chris Brooks. You will literally pay for it. So this match was genuinely very fun, you know. I'll explain what it was. It's also available free on YouTube, this match. If you just search Chris Brooks versus Maya Yukihi, the match itself has been uploaded, as has the full show, I believe. This was from Baka Gaijin and Friends, Volume 3. Baka Gaijin, I believe, means Stupid Foreigner. So Stupid Foreigner and Friends, Volume 3. Chris Brooks, they're referring to himself as the Stupid Foreigner. Um, if you don't know Chris Brooks, one of the... One of the most popular wrestlers of the UK indie boom that we had uh, in recent years over here in, in the UK. Um, one half of the tag team CCK alongside Kid Lycos, which later grew into a stable. Um, really cool wrestler. Really good cool factor. Um, the way he looks, the way he dresses, the his online social media presence, the fact that he just seems to deliberately do what he wants rather than pursuing a wrestling career via traditional means. By what, what I mean by that is rather than try and get signed by NXT UK when that came along, Chris Brooks instead moved his whole life to Japan and has now become an established wrestler in DDT. He does what he wants and has a lot of, um, yeah, I don't know another word for it, a lot of coolness about what he does. He is a wrestler who in the UK, you will find young men mainly who want to be Chris Brooks. <laughs> They want to be as funny as him on social media. They want to look as cool as him. They want to 
be an unashamed indie wrestling nerd who's made it as a wrestler. Except these these guys are are not wrestlers, you know. Um, most of them are not as cool as Chris Brooks. But I understand because it's the same sort of loyalty you see inspired in fans of someone like CM Punk. Obviously, I wish I was CM Punk. I can't be. And on a smaller, more cult level, that's what Chris Brooks has kind of achieved in the UK. And now is, you know, trying to achieve, I guess, in Japan and having a whale of a time doing so by the looks of it. He's putting on his own event. What made this match so special is that it takes place in a small, cramped Tokyo bar. I googled the venue where it took place. It's in a hipster section of Tokyo, because of course it is, and is somehow, despite the incredibly close quarters and the cramped conditions, is still a good wrestling match. (laughs) I don't understand it. I don't know how he's done it. Um, Genuinely, really fun match, you know. And I know it sounds stupid that I... I technically found this Maya Yukihi match against Chris Brooks in a cramped bar more realistic than her actual stardom title match against Julia in a proper arena. But hey, at least this one had realistic selling. Um, And the moves and everything were more impressive in this more scrutinized setting. Not due to the nature of the crowd. I don't think if one of them had missed a strike or whatever, anyone was going to go, oh, you missed that, didn't you? The crowd were very receptive. They were on board with the joke. But... None of the moves were missed. The scrutiny came from it just being really close and you can see things more clearly and hear the connections and it still all seems spot on. It was still a really impressive feat. Arguably more impressive in, in a way than a match in a giant arena would be. Uh, yeah, I just can't believe this was the two, out of the two Maya Yukihi matches, I can't believe this was the one I prefer more. Really good. They obviously do the occasional thing like Brooks at one point jumps off a bar um, uh, to land on his opponent, to land on Maya Yukihi and I think he broke a chandelier at the, at the same time as he did it. <laughs> Um, but those sort of novelty wearing a bar spots were relatively few and far between, given that most wrestlers would not be able to help themselves if they were wrestling in a bar. They'd be doing every Indiana Jones bar fight trick in the book. They'd be sliding each other along the bar, bottles of alcohol over the back. No, they kept that. This was by and large a straight up wrestling match without many Irish whips because there were no ropes, just a crash mat and chairs and stuff. There were submissions, right? And they'd break the submissions by reaching out and grabbing like the nearest fan's arm or leg. Fully on board all the time with wrestling from promotions like Gato Move, who I criticized online once, and still occasionally get a passionate Gato Move fan come at me on Twitter, and I get scared because they are passionate. Nothing is more passionate in wrestling than white Western fans of Japanese stuff. Gato Move's like a comedy similar to this, but like set in, uh, I don't even know what it is like a, a small office or is it a subway station or something? It's set in a weird area with a crash mat and it's really cramped and small. It's all comedy stuff. And I don't really get on board with it because it doesn't, not a lot of it fully connects with me. Chris Brooks has wrestled for that promotion a lot as well. Whereas in this case, this was a real match with hatred and anger and realism behind it that just happened to also be in a small crowded bar. I loved it. I thought it was really good. Check it out. Your mileage could vary significantly from mine. But it is free on YouTube. Just search Baka Gaijin and Friends Volume 3 or Chris Brooks versus Maya YouTube. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wie weit gehen diese Wrestler bei ihren Versuchen, diese bitteren Rivalitäten ein, für allemal zu beenden? Wenn sich der Staub gelegt hat, Wer wird über seinem Gegner thronen? Und wer wird gezwungen, den bitteren Geschmack der Niederlage zu schlucken? Auf der größten Bühne der WXW. Wrestling-infos.de präsentiert. WXW 16 Karat Gold 2023 Night 2. 16 Karat Gold took place, didn't it? In Germany. One of the most prestigious wrestling tournaments in all of Europe. I'd say maybe the most prestigious wrestling tournament in all of Europe. Certainly since the decline of the UK wrestling scene. Because otherwise, like, Progress is super strong. Style 16 was getting up there. Now, the UK scene's fallen away slightly. WXW, I think, still can lay claim to having the most prestigious tournament in Europe. 16 Karat Gold, which is a single elimination knockout tournament, very standard stuff, over the course of a weekend in Oberhausen, Germany. It's got a big... It's become like a, like a pilgrimage for a lot of indie fans to travel from all over to go to this, I've never really heard of Oberhausen either. I googled it. It seems to be nestled amongst various other bigger, more well-known cities like Dortmund and Dusseldorf and Cologne. I think all of them are nearby, hopefully. Uh, and Essen, I've heard of Essen as well. Never heard of Oberhausen, but it's just happened to become the venue for this um, this three-day tournament, which has in the past attracted massive indie wrestling names, including at one time Cody Rhodes. Matthew's been before, and I've asked him about it. And according to him, WWE started poaching a lot of talent. And to be fair as well, since the Speaking Out movement removed, and rightly so, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of people from the wrestling scene. Um, that's kind of hit WXW, and a lot of their most talented regulars are now gone for one reason or another. So he says that the weekend's kind of lost its shine recently. Um, having watched this tournament, which I think is scheduled to hit the network, the WWE network at some point, but which you can now um, join. You can subscribe to their YouTube channel's members section and watch it all on there. All of it has been uploaded now. I would say it was a good tournament. It was a fun watch. 
but maybe hasn't quite hit the heights of previous years, just from my own limited experience, because I've never been there. But it seems like one of those indie things that I might have to do as a fan, just to experience it. I've got a few of my favorite matches to talk about from the three days, and I'll, I'll just dive in right now. Uh, the first one was from night one, and it was Ares versus Commander. Two luchadors in the first round of this tournament, uh, two lads from Mexico, both AAA-based, I believe, going up against each other. Um, Ares I'd never heard of. Commander I'd only recently heard of because he appeared in the Face of the Revolution ladder match on a recent episode of Dynamite um, and kind of blew everyone away, especially Tony Schiavone on commentary. But I, d I was largely going into this blind. Commander has been making a name for himself recently. Ares, during his entrance, I was like, ooh, he's the more eye-catching of the two because he comes out to the nickname King Strange and has cool face paint. Uh... But it was clear as the match went on that he was—he got the less exciting half of the match because he was healing it up. He was trying to ground Commander, who's Commander's kind of like in the Phoenix mold of, of a wrestler or Ray Phoenix. He's got insane balance on the ropes, and that provides the foundation for a lot of his more eye-popping spots. One thing about this match is that it's got the weirdest crowd reaction I've ever seen. They may have been mic'd up badly. I will give them that. I don't want to—I don't want to—you know—I don't want to throw shade at the Oberhausen crowd. Because there were pop, but there were points in this tournament or across the three days of wrestling where they're popping big for loads of stuff. But crucially in this match, unless they were mic'd up badly, it seemed like they weren't that into it. Not in the first half, anyway. Um, like there was moments where Ares was going to chop Commander, and he was shushing the crowd so you could hear the chop. But the crowd were quiet anyway; so <laughs> they were silent already. It was a weird one. That, that's not why it's the weirdest crowd reaction I've ever seen. There's a lot of matches that don't fully click with the crowd. The weird part came when the match finished and everyone jumped to their feet and gave it a standing ovation and threw money into the ring. Now, I know that throwing money in the ring phenomenon is a thing from Lucha Libre, apparently. It's since been replicated in PWG in California. And they're clearly trying to replicate that here because it's two Lucha guys who've had a, well, apparently had a banger of a match. I thought it was a good match, but everyone's acting like it was like the most amazing five stars. Like they're throwing... Some someone threw a five euro note in there. I couldn't believe it. Obviously the coins as well, which is scary. If I was a wrestler, I'd be like, please leave the money. I don't want to get injured by one of your flying coins. And it makes for a nice visual though and, and a good show of appreciation. I just didn't think this match deserved it, if that's not too harsh. Or at least I don't think the crowd thought it deserved it. It was almost like they'd gone, well, this match is going to be amazing and then didn't enjoy it that much, but thought we'll give it the big reaction we'd planned to anyway. Very odd. I liked it anyway. It was still a good match. Probably the pick of night one. Commander's got insane balance. He can do some very impressive dives and stuff. Ares, you can tell, wanted to cut loose a bit more, maybe be a bit more of a luchador, but had to heal it up for this match and played a very selfless role in doing so. It was Commander who won and went on to the next night. And I think that was probably the right call because he's kind of the star of the show. But yeah, you know what? Maybe the problem with the, the deflated crowd was the booking. There were two very deep heel runs in this tournament. Axel Tischer, or WWE fans will know him as Alexander Wolf back in the Sanity stable days, and Ahura, uh, the other heel as well, more of a WXW guy, who Tisha and Ahura both won the last two matches of night one, which did, I think, I think the crowd were waiting for a big happy ending to the show and didn't get it. It's very deflating. I know there's a longer story to be told in multi-day tournaments, but surely at the end of night one, you want to send the crowd home or back to their hotel, I guess, very happy. And that's not what happened. That's not what WXW opted for here. 
Also, the choice of heels was a weird one. Ahura, who I'd never heard of, is a very interesting heel here in this tournament because he, in the first night, eliminated his former tag team partner, Maggot, who's a big babyface, in a grudge match that the crowd desperately wanted Maggot to win. But Ahura won it. In night two, he eliminates Commander, the guy who I've just talked about, who won this match here, the Luchador. So you think, oh, well, this Ahura guy is like the biggest heel in the tournament. He's not. That's Tisha, Alexander Wolf. He's the big bad heel of the tournament. He's the one who goes through to the final. So Ahura is just kind of a, a spoiler in the tournament, ruining the crowd's day without any real payoff. Weird booking for this year's 16 karat gold, I must say. One positive in terms of the booking and in terms of the wrestler himself's performance was a man I'd never heard of again called Peter Tihani or Tihani? Peter, right? But in, but in German, in all the video packages and stuff, they're like, oh yeah, Peter, Peter Tihani. Um, class. I absolutely love Peter Tahani. I'm a big fan now. He is a Hungarian babyface. He looks like a European top flight striker. He's all gangly and long, but has incredible agility and athleticism. But I think the most impressive thing about him isn't his agility and athleticism. It's his natural babyface infectious energy. It's hard not to cheer him. He comes out to dance music. He's got a cap on. He's got... I think he's got a bum bag around his, his or, a, or a fanny pack, as the Americans call it. And he's just having a great time. And he's just a young, good-looking, fun-loving guy who can do a sick 450. How can you not cheer that? He got through to the semifinals, I believe. Yes, he beat Francesco Akira in a good match on night two, then lost to Tisha on the final night in the semifinal. That is a shame. Tisha went on to the final where he beat another highlight of the tournament, Shigehiro Irii, um, someone who's been in WXW quite a lot and deserved his moment to win the tournament, which thankfully he did in the final, beating Axel Tisha. So the two biggest babyfaces, Peter Tahani and Shigehiro Irii, those are my two big success stories of this tournament. Um, Irii didn't just win 16 karat gold this year. He also won the belt, the big belt in WXW as well, because... It was vacant going into this, so they decided, hey, the tournament's for the championship as well. I'll be looking out for more Peter Tahani, though, going forwards. Very impressed with him. Very impressed with Commander. Not impressed, necessarily, with the booking of the tournament. But there were two notable matches from 16 Karat Gold weekend, which weren't in the tournament as well. Uh, one was the semi-main event on the final night, which was a six-man Lucha Rules tag team match. Between, well, all right, on one, on one side you had Commander, the luchador, teaming with Frenchadors, two French luchadors who seem pretty familiar to the WXW crowd. They were good wrestlers, man. Taking on the trio of Trey Miguel from Impact Wrestling, the current X Division champion, I believe. Fuminore, uh, Fuminore excuse me, Abe from Japan. And Ares, the, the King Strange, the one who lost to Commander on night one. This was a match that was like a big spot fest. Uh, the sort of match you might see at a PWG Battle of LA weekend. One of those matches that inspires intense debate on Twitter about what makes for a good wrestling match. Does there need to be storytelling? Can you just get by on spots alone? I'd say it's all relevant. Uh, sorry, it's all relative. And that sometimes you need to tell a story and that sometimes you just want to see little men do little flips. And, that, and that's what we got here. Actually, French Adores weren't that little. But Trey Miguel, Arez, and to an extent Arbe and Commander, all little flippy men. Are not so flippy, but... Still not tall. It was a cool match. Check that one out if you like flips and not much else. But I'm not trying to throw shade on it there either. I'm just saying 
It was a spot fest. And if you go in knowing it's a spot fest, you'll have a great time. I certainly did. But my favorite match of the entire weekend did not take place in the tournament either. It didn't even take place on one of the tournament days. It took place in one of the side events that WXW put on uh, called Ambition. This was Ambition 14. Ambition is kind of similar to WrestleMania weekend Bloodsport events, where it's a shoot-style knockout or submission tournament. The matches are shorter. Unlike Bloodsport, there is a ring and ring ropes. Bloodsport take away the ropes usually for a very distinct look, but Ambition keeps the ropes, and it's just heavily MMA-inspired. And it's a really nice change of pace from usual pro wrestling stuff. The match I most enjoyed from this year's Ambition was, which is also available as a member on their WSW YouTube channel, was Icarus versus Patrick Bork. Icarus is one of the tag team champions currently in WXW. Skinhead, heel tag team. Icarus looks intense. He's not only one half of the tag team champions, he's also a scary bloke. Looks really mean, good heel. I assume he's a heel anyway. If he's not, there's something weird going on because he, he was not happy to be there, let me tell you. Taking on Patrick Bork, who is not a wrestler as far as I can tell. I did a Google of him. He's an MMA fighter with a 1-0 record as far as I could tell. But then I doubted myself because he said he was, in his post-match promo, he said he was 38 or something around that age. And I thought, that's a bit old to have a 1-0 record. Maybe he just got that first win and thought, that'll do for me. I'm going to retire now. Bork is an MMA fighter from GMC, German MMA champ, the German MMA championship, I think it stands for, the GMC. Uh, an MMA promotion, which is from a similar part of Germany to WXW. And he's being brought in to WXW, to this ambition shoot-style tournament by GMC, this MMA promotion. And he's kind of a special attraction. He's not taking part in the tournament itself. He's taking part in a match against Icarus, one half of the WXW Tag Team Champions. Peter Bork isn't as imposing as Icarus. He doesn't look as intimidating. He's quite small, doesn't have as unkind a face, but just kicks his ass. And the match is only like three, four minutes long. And it is great stuff. I fully enjoyed this match. Even though he's not a wrestler, you can tell he's had enough training to make a good attempt at it. And they have a thrilling little match. Peter Bork is ducking moves from Icarus. He's using his MMA expertise. There's a really good head kick at one point. There are submission attempts. It's all fast and frantic and feels special because the crowd get really into it as well. There's this whole MMA versus pro wrestling spectacle about it. I loved it. I thought it was really good. And everyone likes Peter Bork. I'm now a big fan of his, even though I have no idea who he is. Great stuff, Peter. Well done. I think part of the reason maybe I enjoyed it so much was the context. It came right in the middle of watching this long three-day tournament of quite well-developed matches. And it's just short and explosive and gives the people exactly what they want. So I think that deserves props as well. Well done to Icarus playing the fall guy, who, despite being very imposing and one half of the tag team champions, was not afraid to make himself look like a bit of a fool here against a smaller, yet more dangerous MMA man. Well done, everyone involved. Let's have a look at what this idiot did in America. Whatever you're going to do, Vikingo. Oh, my God! The 630! Incredible! I have never seen anything like that. Neither is Don Callis. He's worried about his champion now. I think Kenny Omega Omega is going to get with the Bucks at the hospital. He's going to be in the hospital. Look at this. Off the middle rope, V. Kingo launches, and then the 630 senton 
crushing Omega through the table. And finally, the kind of miscellaneous section of matches of the month. And this month, we've got another little variety of different types of bouts all across the world of wrestling, starting with one that happened very recently at the time of recording on AW Dynamite, Kenny Omega taking on El Hijo del Vikingo from AAA. Uh, a match that provoked one of those meaningless, very tiresome Twitter arguments that comes along these days, usually between WWE fans and AW fans, where something small or rather insignificant gets picked up upon by one group and used to attack the other group or the other the promotion of the other group. In this case, AW promoted Kenny Omega versus Elio Del Vikingo, and the other side went, hang on, why would the casual fans care about this? And I think it's such a pointless argument because we saw it with Eddie Kingston versus Cody Rhodes. What a match that was. What it, what it did for Eddie Kingston and his in the entire context of his career was unbelievable. Well, maybe this maybe this match will do the same for Vikingo. You never know. Even if not, you know, tune in anyway. There's nothing wrong with the unknown in wrestling. There's nothing wrong with a surprise factor. So even if you've never heard of Vikingo, I don't think AEW necessarily really minded because he is what he can do. And that's not me trying to pick a side in the AWWWE debate. I like both promotions. I also dislike both promotions at times. I think they've both got positives and faults when it comes to their booking and the product they put out. But Vikingo did exactly what he needed to do in this situation to settle the argument, I think. And he went in there and tore it apart against Kenny Omega. This match was very much a showcase for Vikingo. Even though Kenny ultimately won, which he should have done because he's the one with the ongoing storylines. He's the main event man in AW. Vikingo got a lot of offense, a lot of unique offense as well. Like that Phoenix splash from the outside of the middle rope back into the ring or the running, was it a double 450? I don't know what it was. Through the table on the outside though, that was devastating in a good way. Yeah, he's a unique wrestler, a very special talent. Kind of reminds me, because he's so small and compact and so impossibly quick, kind of reminds me of, like, a Jack Evans or an Amazing Red, but with his own lucha flair as, about him as well. He's one of the easiest wrestlers I've ever seen uh, to cheer in my life, in terms of especially walking into a crowd that might not all be familiar with him. He won them over so fast. And I think AEW knew he would do that when they booked this match. I doubt they had too many worries about that. Very odd Twitter discourse that led into it. So that is one match I'd like to mention here. Uh, there's also a couple of Will Ospreay matches. Ospreay got injured this month, which is a massive shame because uh, he's always good for just casually providing a few match of the year contenders over the course of any given year. Um, but unfortunately, he is injured. Hopefully, he recovers well and quickly because he had two really good matches this month. One of them was last month, but it became available on demand this month. We'll start by talking about that one. Osprey versus Luke Jacobs in RevPro. They held a show in Birmingham last month, which, as I say, became available on their website this month. And I watched it this month and really enjoyed it. I'd not really been too familiar with Luke Jacobs before this match. He's Northwest strong. I think he's a Manchester-based wrestler. Big, powerful boy. Um, definitely made Osprey the smaller man in this match, which isn't that often these days because Osprey really bulked up when he became a heavyweight in New Japan. Really mixed his high-flying style well with an improved strength and the ability to lift people into that Stormbreaker and throw them around. It made him more of a rounded talent, didn't it? Instead of a pure high-flyer, even though he was really good as a pure high-flyer as well, to be fair. Um, Jacobs is still the bigger man. 
and it's clear in this match. Osprey, though, doesn't wrestle him like he would have done a bigger man back in the day. He stands toe-to-toe with him and exchanges strikes and is also attempting his own power moves, but all it takes is a big lariat from Luke Jacobs to get back on top. So it's a nice back and forth. You've also got Osprey with the experience edge, a story they told well in this match. He does dominate most of it, I think it's fair to say, but Jacobs' comebacks and his moments in control are thrilling because he's such a like powerful boy and so exciting to watch. The ending was a little bit unfortunate, I think, because they were building to such a good crescendo. And then Osprey did a gorgeous sunset bomb from the top back into the ring. And I think, hopefully he's not injured or anything. I think Jacobs at least got his bell rung. He was definitely dazed on the floor. You see the ref bend down, have quite a long conversation with him. Osprey wants to go straight into the finishing sequence, you can tell, but has to slow himself down and pick him, pick Jacobs back up and clearly whisper like he's clearly saying are you okay trying to hide it as best he can in the context of the match um they still finish the match and credit to them and credit especially to jacobs for powering through hopefully he was okay but it definitely made the last few spots just a little bit more let's get to the end of this match if you know what i mean Still a really good match. It's made me a fan of Luke Jacobs. I'll definitely have to look out for him going forwards. Uh, The other Osprey match I want to mention was back in New Japan in uh, this month on the 13th of March in the New Japan Cup in the second round against his stablemate, Mark Davis, who I saw a lot of comparisons to Stan Hansen because of after this match. Not just physically, because he's grown a a, a bit of a mustache and looks a bit more wild these days, but also... Because of the way he wrestles. He's a big, uncompromising, bruising boy with surprising mobility and incredible power. And I think the the Stan Hansen comparison is quite apt, although I would suggest that Mark Davis is a modern-day upgrade to the Stan Hansen model. He can do do more, you know, he's deceptively quite nimble for um, such, like, a tall, big man. Um, It was a great match as well. If anything... I'd have liked to have seen them maybe explore the unique matchup between the two of them more in this match. Because again, Osprey tried to go toe-to-toe with Davis. They are stablemates, so there was an element of respect in this match and one-upmanship. But yeah, I would have liked to have seen maybe Osprey play more the smaller man in, in danger and Davis play the dominant powerhouse a little bit, maybe even emphasize that a little bit more than they did. That's not to say that Osprey didn't give Davis a lot in this match because this this felt like more of a showcase for Mark Davis than it did Osprey. Although it was Osprey who ultimately won, and um, then we got unfortunate news afterwards that Osprey was injured. So Davis took his place back in the tournament and then got knocked out again. So it all led to a bit of a messy situation in the New Japan Cup and an unfortunate injury for Will Osprey. I couldn't tell when in the match it happened assuming the injury did happen in this match. There was a moment where he did a phenomenal forearm and then clutched his own shoulder. Maybe it was then. I don't quite know. But yeah, hopefully everything turns out all right um, in quick fashion. I know that Osprey has now been replaced in his WrestleMania weekend match against Speedball Mike Bailey by Hiroshi Tanahashi, which is a very fresh up, uh, fresh matchup, I should say. As, as great opponents as Osprey and Speedball are, Tanahashi versus Speedball, I've never seen that before in my life. Um, and it's for the Impact show over WrestleMania weekend. So I suspect we might well be talking about that one on the next edition of this podcast. And finally, 
the IWGP Tag Team Title match, which took place on March 6th at New Japan's 51st anniversary event. This was Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi, the, the tag team champions, otherwise known as Bishamon, taking on the man I've just mentioned, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Kazuchika Okada, the two biggest stars in Japanese wrestling, probably, over the past decade and a half, nearly. Um, certainly Tanahashi, going back even further, but Okada has dominated the 2010s, of course, and continues to dominate the 2020s. Um, so the story here was brilliant. We all know the trope uh, uh, and the criticism often aimed at matches where it's two single stars against an established top tag team and the two single stars win because they're two singles stars. We always hate that in wrestling. I dislike it because the, the point is, even if the two singles superstars are much better individually in kayfabe, they don't specialize as a team together. So why are they beating this established tag team? New Japan risked our wrath doing this when Okada and Tanahashi decided to team up to challenge Okada's chaos pals, Goto and Yoshihashi. But instead of it all going wrong, they actually turned it into something pretty cool. So even, I think this story was even being told during the entrances, which is that Okada and Tanahashi are kind of enjoying the novelty of it all. They're hyping up the crowd. They're posing all cool, like in the middle of the ring, like it's some sort of dream superhero team up. The champions come out much less fanfare. They're just here for business. Um, and the match itself, I very much enjoyed the wider framework of the match and the unique situation going into it and the way they played off that that dynamic and told this story. I really enjoyed that. But what I didn't enjoy as much was the, the nuts and bolts of the match itself. Like I thought some of the moves, like there was a moment where there was a lot of the champions doing double hammer fists on Tanahashi's back. They just weren't making contact. There were like little loose moments here and there. So on a wider level, I enjoyed the match for the story it generally told. In terms of the glue of the match or whatever, the construction of the match, not as much of a fan. But that's okay. I still enjoyed the big moments of the match, the big set-piece moments, like Bishamon's superior teamwork saving the day for them right at the end, um, and, and the fact that they ultimately won and beat Okada and Tanahashi. Um, that's a brilliant decision. Showing that tag team wrestling is alive and well in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, it's a weird one to talk about because I wanted to enjoy it much more than I actually did. And I think that even though it was a very fun match and one that I certainly liked watching, it's not its not a match of the year candidate, is it? So there we go. Those are my thoughts on that. Uh, and I think... That was pretty much it. Oh, and it had one of the loudest crowds I've ever seen, I think, for a New Japan match outside of the Tokyo Dome. So there was that as well. That helped it too. My top 10 matches of March 2023. At number 10, Chris Brooks versus Maya Yukihi in a small bar in Tokyo. Number 9, Icarus versus MMA fighter Patrick Bork in WXW's Ambition Tournament this past two weeks ago. Uh, at number eight, John Moxley versus Hangman Adam Page, Texas Deathmatch, Grizzly, Grim, Bloody, ooh, still pretty good. Number seven, Will Ospreay versus Mark Davis in the New Japan Cup. Number six, Kenny Omega versus El Hijo del Vic uh, Vikingo, excuse me, in AW. Number five, Will Ospreay again in 
Rev Pro versus Big Luke Jacobs. Number four, six-man tag team action, the Elite going down to the new champions, the House of Black. Number three, Saya Kamatani versus Hazuki in Stardom for the Wonder of Stardom Championship. Number two, MJF versus Brian Danielson in that 60-minute Ironman match. And it's been beaten by number one for the high-speed championship in stardom, Azumi versus Starlight Kid. Um, we'll see where they slot into my overall top ten. There's still a few matches left from January and February in there, but there's a few new additions from March as well. So number ten, Jay White versus Eddie Kingston, loser leaves New Japan. Still, I think the match that I found the best that other people didn't enjoy as much for whatever reason. Can't tell why. Number nine, Darby Allen versus Samoa Joe for the TNT title, no DQ. Number eight. It's the Wonder of Stardom match. Sayakamitani versus Suzuki. Number seven, it's the Iron Man match. Seven might be low, actually. Oh, well, number seven, MJF versus Brian Danielson in the 60-minute Iron Man match. I might bump that a bit higher if I have a change of heart in the future. Number six, Kaito Kiyomiya versus Kazuchika Okada. Noah versus New Japan. Number five, Kaito Kiyomiya again on New Year's Day taking on Keno. Number four, Inglate, El Lindemann versus Kaito Ishida. Number three, the high-speed championship match. Azumi versus Starlight Kid. Number two, the all-Japan tag team classic in my opinion, Kento Miyahara and Takuya Nomura taking on Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura and number one, still my match of the year so far from Wrestle Kingdom Night 1, Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega. So there you have it. Those were my matches of the month for March 2023 and my matches of the year so far. How much will change though over WrestleMania week? I will see you in the aftermath of that absolute festival of wrestling fun. And thank you once again for watching. Uh, listening, damn it, not used to being just on audio. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I've been Jack from Cultaholic and I'll see you very soon. 